All right. If you've got your uh, copy of the scriptures, join me in Jeremiah chapter 29. Um, And by way of explanation, who's familiar with the Princess Bride? Anybody? All right. Well, then you'll be familiar with um, the Sicilian man who multiple times in about 30 seconds uses the word inconceivable to describe all kinds of different situations. To which Anigo Montoya, the man on our cover, says, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. In the same way, we have all heard Scripture being taken out of context. And I'm here to tell you that verse, I don't think it means what you think it means. We're going to talk about that today, and we're going to begin with the second most searched for Bible verse in all of Scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11. Now, if you're like me, I think it was about seventh grade uh, youth camp where I heard of a concept I'd never heard before. It was called discovering your life verse, in wh- which became like a treasure hunt through the Bible to find that verse that I wanted to apply to my life. And of course, being a selfish uh, ninth grader, Jeremiah 29, 11 just suited me just fine. I know the plans I have for you for blessing and for prosperity. Man, I had it all figured out. And uh, it's a verse that I picked that has meant a lot to me. Everybody loves it. Here's the problem. If you want Jeremiah 29, 11 to apply to you properly, what you should probably do after this worship service is move to Iraq get captured by a bunch of Babylonians for 70 years, and then claim that verse is yours. It's not written to me. It's not. It's not written to you. It was written by God to Babylonian exiles to reassure them that despite appearances, God was not done with them. That he, even though they were being punished for their sins by this captivity, they would not be annihilated no matter how much it might seem like their circumstances would be pointing in that direction. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you in one big, long, pregnant sentence the meaning of Jeremiah 20 and 11. And then we're going to talk about how do we get to a point where we understand its context and its audience and go from 597 B.C., all the way over to 2017 AD and understand appropriately how to apply this text to ourselves. So here's the meaning. Jeremiah 29, specifically verse 11, is a proclamation made to a specific nation. Proclamation made to a specific nation in a particular situation prophesying a restoration of a future generation. That's a lot of shuns, Kelly Brindle. It's not even, what is that? That's like end alliteration. I don't know what you call that. But here is the meaning of Jeremiah 20 and 11. It is a proclamation to a specific nation in a particular situation, prophesying the restoration, not of the immediate people, but a future generation. So, Pastor Scott, what are you saying? That this doesn't apply to us? Yes and no. Not the way you probably typically think about it. 
we want to avoid invalid and irresponsible applications of Scripture. So two things that I think are very helpful in the front end to help us understand Jeremiah 20 and 11. It was not written to us personally. It was written to Israel corporately. It was a y'all statement, not a you statement. It was written to a body of people, not to me to be my life verse. Context. Number two... It was written with the future in mind because it was prophesying the restoration of a future generation. It was not designed for short-term benefit. Now, what do I mean about short-term benefit? Anybody here listen to Christian radio? I love Christian radio, but it drives me crazy sometimes. And I don't know if you know this. If you are a Christian DJ, not only are you a wicked, wicked, wicked DJ, you're a licensed counselor. Did you know that? Have you ever heard a DJ counsel people on the radio? Drives me nuts. They have no business being counselors. They're DJs. And so here's, here's a story that I heard recently. Very pious, and it's a good motivation. But there's a guy that's just graduated college, top of his class. And he is despondent because well, despite the fact that he graduated with good grades, the top of his class, he can't get his ideal company to offer him a six-figure job. So he wants to call into the radio station to announce to the world his, his problem. He's just, he's, he's just so sad. You just want to hug him. Poor snowflake, come here. Let me just love on you. <laughs> to which the... To, <laughs> that was not in the notes. Um, to, which, to which the DJ slash counselor goes, Oh, honey, Jeremiah 29, 11... For I know the plans that I have for you. And she's probably waving her hand, you know, to prosper you and to give you that six-figure job that you've always dreamed of. And we turn this promise into something that becomes very materialistic, very self-centered, and we make it sound like God is more interested in his self-interest than even he himself is. And the truth is, maybe Mr. Really Proud, Really Bright College graduate needs to be unemployed for six months to teach him how to depend upon God and not on his ideal six-figure income. But yet there's all these weird applications of Scripture where we're quoting it, but it's completely ripped out of its context. I'll tell you a story of Big John. I don't know if you know Big John in your life, but I played softball with Big John. And Big John, man, I don't have a thing that I can do this with. I need a stick. Big John, church softball. Be be outside of the batter's box here. He'd, you know, spit his chewing tobacco because that's what you do when you play church league softball. He'd knock off his cleats, step into, that, step into that batter's box, and he would claim the promise of Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the whole team would say, Amen. That is not what that verse is about. I'm pretty sure that Jesus was not making a promise that you're going to yank it over the fence every time you get up to bat. So again, that verse, I don't think it means what you think it means. How do we get to a point where we understand what Jeremiah 29, 11 meant to its original hearers and what it means to us? Three simple points. The first is this. We have to understand that God is beautiful in his sovereign glory. God's beauty is not like the Grand Canyon. God's beauty is not like your bride on her wedding day. God's bride is not like your firstborn child. His beauty is greater than all those things. It's amazing. And here's what he says 
in Jeremiah 29. We'll begin in verse 1, and then we'll skip to verses 4 through 7 and 14. I want you to see this point very clearly. He begins the letter by saying, This is the text of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exiles, the priests, the prophets, and all the people, Nebuchadnezzar, listen to this, to all the people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who deported them? I'm seeing if you're listening. Who deported them? Yeah, you might not be able to pronounce it, Nebuchadnezzar. He's one bad dude. Nebuchadnezzar, verses 4 through 7. He starts in verse 1 saying, hey, here's the text of the letter. We're going to read you a letter. We want you to understand what's happening here. It's the letter about all the people uh, Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 4. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles, I deported from Jerusalem. To Babylon. Who deported them? Wait, 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 wait. All right. Y'all playing funny with the Bible? Because you just told me Nebuchadnezzar deported them. And now in verse 4, God says, I deported them. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles. I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city. I have departed you too. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for when it has prosperity, you will prosper. Skip down to verse 14. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place I deported you from. Who deported the Israelites? Nebuchadnezzar? Or God? It's a trick question. It's both. God used a pagan to accomplish his will. Which, you know what's really sad? It was easier for God to use a pagan than one of his own people. Now that's another sermon in there. You can develop it the way that you want. A pagan obeyed God better than his people did. Because if his people obeyed him, then they wouldn't have been deported. They wouldn't have been banished. I'll leave that for another time. What is God doing here? He's saying, um, let me dis- dis- display for you the beauty of my glory. I did it, not them. This is not a series of unfortunate events. This is not something that they go, oh my goodness, what happened to our national sovereignty? I am in charge. Does that sound comforting to you if you were one of these people who was deported? It should. It should. How do we have confidence that God wins in the end? I mean, like, I hope that there's not a lot of time before he returns, and I'm tempted to think that there's not. Let's just say that there's a lot of time before he returns. How do we know with certainty that something's not going to happen that he can't control? How do we know that he wins? If, he, if he's limited in his knowledge or his power, something could surprise him. Something could be more powerful than him. But that's contrary to what the Bible teaches. He has all knowledge. He is, he's wise and he's perfect in his power. He wins in the end because there's nothing greater than him that can defeat him. So that means he's in charge of even all the bad stuff that happens. He's not directly responsible. Nebuchadnezzar did it. But he's still sovereignly in charge in a way that it's hard for us to comprehend. It is good news that he is so awesomely big 
Because that means even when it seems like the bottom falls out of life, he still sits on the throne. And so the Bible teaches us to have complete and total confidence in him. Let me repeat that. The Bible teaches us to have total and complete confidence in him. The challenge is that's not the way of the world. The way of the world is self-confidence. The way of the Christian is God-confidence. The world says, you know what? Here's, you want to plan for success? You want to implement Jeremiah 29, 11? Believe in yourself, follow your heart, and God will bless you. The last time I seemed to check, though, the Bible said my heart's deceptively wicked and I shouldn't trust it. And yet the world's advice is, man, listen, if your heart wants it, go for it. Don't worry about all that sin stuff. We'll figure that out later. Just believe in yourself, follow your heart, and God will bless you. I want you to notice something. When we get to that well-beloved verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, listen, y'all probably have it like crocheted on your eyelids. You know it as well as I do. For I know the plans I have for you. I want you to notice something. God's promise for blessing is on his plans for you, not your plans for you. Here's the challenge, okay? When we talk about Bible study or we talk about preaching, there, there are... Uh, there are two options that you have when it comes to how you, you teach or preach the Bible. The first is the way that you want to do it. It's called exegesis. Ex meaning out of. It means you want to pull meaning out of the scriptures. My goal is to not say anything that you can't find in the verse. I may say it in a way that you've not heard it, or there may be something that's revealed in the scripture, but if it's not rooted in the scripture, then uh, talk to the deacons and terminate me. It's plain and simple. I don't want to say anything that's not, that the scripture is the boundary of the playing field for me. And so I want to pull out of the scripture what is already there. The opposite of that, which is bad, is eisegesis. Eis means into, where you read meaning into the scripture. So now you can find America in the Bible, and you can find Mickey Mouse in the Bible, and you can find Donald Trump in the Bible. Why? It's not in the Bible. You've read into it. That's bad. Because then you're manipulating scripture to make it say what you want it to say. Here's the problem of our day and age. I have, I have created a new word. It is not in the dictionary, but you need to put it there, okay? The problem that we have when it comes to claiming promises in the Bible is what I'm going to call narcissus. Anybody figure out what that is? We are so in love with ourselves, not with God, with ourselves, that we insert ourselves into the text and completely disregard the meaning, the context, or the environment to which it was written. We will do violence to the scripture to make it mean what we want it to mean, not what God objectively wants it to mean. So do not be a narcissist, because either God is sovereign or you are. And the narcissist doesn't want to give God any opportunity to say, uh, I, that's not what I meant. Well, I don't care what you meant. This is what, I, this is what it means to me. That's not the point. Not the point. Proverbs 16, 9. We have to remember that God's ways are not always. Proverbs 16, 9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. God has the right to disrupt man's plans. You know why? We're creatures. He created us. Like, if you went out to go mow your grass and your lawnmower goes, yeah, just not kind of feeling it today. Are you going to go, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Lawnmower? Let me put you back and oil you up and get you nice and clean and give you a nice weekend off. No, it's your thing. You're going to make it do what you want it to do regardless of how it feels. 
In the same way, God has the right to disrupt man's plans. And that's exactly what he does in Jeremiah 29. He upends their dreams, and God even apparently desecrates his own holy land and his own holy temple. The truth is the people had already desecrated it with their sin. God just put his exclamation point on it by allowing the Babylonians to come in and destroy it. The things that God meant as a blessing became an idol, and God had to remove it. And say, so for you to learn your lesson, you need to be expelled from the land because you're polluting it. So here's the backstory. For us to understand Jeremiah 29 right, we have to understand Jeremiah 21. And in Jeremiah 21, you'll see a couple interesting things here. Let me read it for you, verses 1 through 5. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent Pashur, son of Malchijah, and the priest Zephaniah, son of Masaiah, to Jeremiah. And he said, "'Ask the Lord on our behalf.'" Since Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is making war against us, perhaps the Lord will perform for us something like all his past wonderful works so that Nebuchadnezzar will withdraw from us. Here's what he's saying. Uh, We're freaking out because Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon are knocking on the door. They have already invaded our borders. They're at the capital city. They are at the gate. And God is mighty to save. Let's claim that verse right now. He's mighty to say, Jeremiah, you talk to God regularly. Ask him if he's going to protect us. Okay? That seems to be a good question. That seems to be fair. Listen to what Jeremiah has to tell the king on behalf of God. It says, but Jeremiah answered, this is what you are to say to Zedekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I will repel the weapons of war in your hand. Those you are using to fight the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the wall, I will bring them into the center of the city. I will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm with anger, rage, and great wrath. If you had to deliver that message to the king, you think you'd massage it just a little bit? You think you'd make it it sound a little more user-friendly? Because the king's asking, hey, is God going to fight for us? And Jeremiah says, nope, he's actually going to fight against you. And here is what is so audacious. God's people are living so wickedly that they don't pay attention to him seven days of the week. They don't even pay attention on the Sabbath. They have completely disregarded who God is and his claims upon their life until they get in trouble. And they're living so wickedly that they don't even realize that their own God is against them. And they go, ring, ring, ring. Hey, I know it's been a while, but you know, you remember us? We're your children. We're in trouble. In case you don't see us, we're down here. Come help. To make matters worse, the king doesn't really like Jeremiah's message. You have to imagine that message kind of made him prom king. He got real popular with everybody when he says, hey, sorry, God's people, it doesn't matter. You're not safe in the Holy Land anymore. God has removed his hedge of protection and he's actually warring against you because of your sin. That the king starts rallying the troops. He starts conscripting people. He starts setting up the defense. And in 21.9, here's what Jeremiah says. Whoever stays in the city will die by the sword, famine, and plague. But whoever goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you will live and will retain his life like the spoils of war. Jeremiah says, all right, here's what God says, and I know the king's disregarding it, and he's asking you to fight, but I'm telling you, if you fight, you die. If you want to live, you surrender. Surrender? 
No way. So Jeremiah, for 45 chapters in his book of sermons, rails against the Jews because they have gotten so brazen in their sin that they've forgotten how to blush. That's like making light of sin. Oh, yeah, good joke. Yeah, I should joke about my wife that way too. No, you shouldn't. Oh, you know, that's what those people do. No, no, don't joke with sin. They have forsaken God, they have broken covenant, and they have committed theological suicide by departing from the only one who can give them life. And I want you to think about this. When we talk about God's sovereign glory, God, God has made these people. He has literally created them by redeeming them from Egypt. You remember the movie? You know, he got them out crossed the Red Sea, wandered in the wilderness. He has caused them to know them by giving them good laws that demonstrate who he is and his character. And I want you to think about this. You guys are affiliated with all kinds of different organizations and institutions. This church is one of them. Your family is one of them. You have a job that you work for, a company that has a brand. And there are probably other civic organizations that you belong to. About half of you, I think, belong to the NRA. And so, um, you know, there's organizations that you're affiliated with. Well, what if your name being affiliated with an organization became a really bad thing because of a very public stance that they took? What would you do? Would you be embarrassed to have your name affiliated with that organization? Would they continue to represent you? If you're a parent here, (laughs) this is a, a, a glorious and potentially embarrassing truth about parenthood. Your child bears your name, and what comes out of his or her mouth can either make you really proud or make you want to crawl under the table. They represent you, and there's the opportunity for really good or really bad to come from that. And in the same way, when God's people who are supposed to represent him go off the reservation, not that God is a man, but how is he going to feel about that? He doesn't put up with sin because he's righteous and he's just and he has to punish, which leads us to our second point. God's righteous wrath is a significant component of his character. I talked about this here uh, in the first service. Let me move some of this here. And uh, I've talked about this before. But if I am, um, JP, I think that's your stuff. I'm trying to keep it in order here for you. If I wanted to put a sign up here that I wanted you guys to read, and uh, <clears throat> I got some construction paper with black, cut black letters out and put it against a black background. Are any of you going to be able to read that? No. Black letters against a black background doesn't make any sense. In the same way, it, it, while we talk about the love of God, we're going to talk about this here in a second, the Bible is much more full of conversations about God's wrath and anger uh, against sin and against unrighteousness. We don't fully understand God's love if it's not in contrast to something. And so this is God's wrath in white letters here would be God's love. The contrast allows you to make sense of something because it doesn't just all blend in into some kind of mushy-gushy background. So there's a contrast that's important. So for us to fully understand God's love, we really cannot do that fully or comprehensively without understanding God's wrath. So God's wrath, his righteous wrath, is a significant component of his character. Let me put it this way. He cannot not punish sin and still be just. Think about that. He's not overindulgent. He's just. And if he's going to be just, he cannot 
not punish sin. If his goodness has any kind of objective meaning, he must pursue justice. That's a requirement for his character. So there are more references to anger, fury, and wrath than to love and tenderness. Jesus, get this, Jesus speaks more about hell than any other biblical character. Did you know that? It's fully appropriate too. Jesus is the man who loved us enough to die on the cross for us. And I want you to hear this quote from uh, William Shedd, preacher from a previous era. For as none but God has the right and would dare to sentence a soul to eternal misery for sin, and as none but God has the right and would dare to execute the sentence, God alone can uh, sentence a soul to misery and God alone can execute the sentence and no human being would ever dare to take that prerogative for themselves. So none but God has the right and should presume to delineate the nature and consequences of this sentence. This is the reason why most of the awful imagery in which the sufferings of the lost are described are in the discourses of our Lord and Savior. Who's qualified to talk about the misery of God's wrath and separation from him. Only Jesus. Only he can execute the sentence. Only he can condemn a soul to hell. And only he can, as the sacrifice for sin, be the one to fully talk about the warning. He's the only one that gets it. I I fully think that if we understood the reality of wrath, number one, we would live differently. Number two, we would share the gospel more. We can't allow people to build their life on a house of cards knowing that they are not going to turn. If we don't warn them of wrath, why else are they going to repent? They just wake up someday and think it's a good idea? Our brokenness is so bad. We're not going to turn to this passage of Scripture. But our brokenness is so bad. You know what we naturally do? We tend to think that the person next to us is worse off than we are. Anybody is worse off than we are. So I'll give you, a, for instance, I'm going to pick on my boys. This is not a true story. This is fictional. <clears throat> but let's say Colin gets in trouble yesterday for talking back to his parents. And he goes, wait, 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 time out, Mom and Dad. What Caleb said yesterday was far worse than what I said. Now, I could actually imagine that happening in my household. Would that ha- could that happen in yours? Oh, yeah, yeah. Would I... Hold on, God. What I did is not as bad as what those guys did. So here's, here's the tie into Jeremiah. 597, ba- uh, Babylon comes in, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and he takes the vast majority of the inhabitants of um, Jerusalem and he takes them to Babylon. They're captured. They're slaves. There's a small group of people that escape getting captured. Like, I don't know, they hid somewhere and then they wait till all the fighting dies off and then they come out and they're like, whew. Those guys must be, God must have really wanted to get them because they're slaves. We're at least free. There's not many of us. The walls are broken down. The city's destroyed. But we must be more righteous because God has saved us. We're still in Jerusalem. That's the holy city, right? We're okay. Well, in Jeremiah 24, God gives Jeremiah a vision. He says, Jeremiah, what do you see? And Jeremiah says, I see figs. As a matter of fact, the good figs are the best figs ever and, and the bad figs, are so bad that they're inedible. And God goes, here's the meaning of the vision that I've given you. The good figs are the captives that I've taken to Babylon. The bad figs who are eventually going to be destroyed are the people who remain in Jerusalem. The captives are the future. That sounds counterproductive, but you know what happens to the people who get left? The people who get left, the people from the tribe of Judah who get left, cease to exist 
because they start to intermarry with the tribes around them and they become what we know in the New Testament as the Samaritans, half-breeds. They've polluted their pure Jewish blood by intermarrying with these other nomadic tribes around them and they cease to exist. If there's a future to Israel, to Judah, it's going to be in the captives who get to come back. And so God says, hey, the entire nation has been destroyed. Don't get into a competition. Oh, we must be better off than they are. You're all messed up. Yet we all tend to think that our sin is eensy teensy weensy compared to this iceberg of sin we see in someone else. His punishment, the Bible says, is dreadful for his creatures. But for us who are in Christ, it is cast as fatherly discipline for his children. Listen to this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. It says this, You have forgotten, you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one that he loves and he punishes every son that he receives. So endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. That's good news. He loves you enough to discipline you. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, which all receive, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had natural fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But God does it for our benefit so that we can share His holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. He's saying that these people that are captive in Babylon, like Israel in the wilderness, will be a warning about not trusting in God. God's ultimate plan was for their good, But did you hear how this plays out? Look at verse 10 of Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord says. And by the way, verse 10, in case you don't know this, comes before verse 11. Everybody loves Jeremiah 29, 11, and they fail to read Jeremiah 29, 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and I will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. You know what that means? He's already given instruction, build houses, plant gardens, give your sons and daughters in marriage, um, seek the welfare of the city. He's not saying, hey, you're going camping for the weekend. He's saying, build you a house. You're going to be here for a long time. As a matter of fact, you're going to be here for 70 years. Does that invalidate God's promise? Don't you wish God was on the same timetable we were? Think about this. If you are a um, father in this generation, let's say you're 35 years old, are you going to live to see this promise fulfilled? Nope. You know what? Your kids may not see it fulfilled. 70 years is a long time. You know who's going to see the fulfillment of the promise? Your grandkids. God is not concerned about the short term the way we are. His benefits and His blessings sometimes come down the road. And so this promise is not a get-out-of-jail-free card for the captives. No, you have to endure and you have to plan for a long stay and work for your captor's welfare. God had promised 
that Abraham and his seed would be a blessing to the nations. And if they wouldn't go willingly, he would force them to go, to live out the law, to finally turn from their sin and turn back to God, which is the purpose of discipline. Discipline from God is to make you seek the Lord, confess your sins, and draw near. Now, let me see here. Uh, Donnie, I see you got your boy here in, in, in worship here today. So, Carl, I didn't ask for your permission to, to pick on you here. But um, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say it's probably been a really long time that you've turned Carl over your knee and given him a little paddle on the tush. Yeah, it's last week. Last week? Really? Wow. Carl, no. Here's, here's what's great. In our, in our parlance as parents, the purpose of discipline is for self-discipline. Carl, like me, learned from my dad's discipline that there are some things that you do that are going to get you in trouble. And if you learn to avoid those things and do the right thing, guess what happens to discipline? It disappears. Thankfully, kids learn. Are the children of Israel going to? Are they going to understand what the purpose of discipline is? To be trained, like Hebrews says, to pursue his righteousness and his holiness. Thankfully, God's dreadful discipline is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story because we see God's graciousness demonstrated in his love and forgiveness. Let's go back to Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. This is what the Lord says when 70 years for Babylon are complete. I will attend to you. I will hear you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you in this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will, in 70 years, call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place I deported deported you from. Seventy years that are not pleasant now, but his ultimate aim is to encourage and to bless us. He says, there will come a point where you will learn the lesson and you will be brought to your senses, where you will seek me with all your heart, you'll repent, and I will respond to the prayer of a repentant man. Here's what's fascinating. If you want to tie two passages of Scripture together, write down Daniel 9 in your margin. Daniel 9, it's, it's interesting. It's the way that Scripture kind of attests to Scripture. Daniel says he found Jeremiah's book and he read Jeremiah 29 about the 70 years. And Jeremiah was just a little boy whenever Jeremiah was preaching. He grows up and he reads the book and he's been in captivity for like 68 years. We don't know how long it is, 69 years. And he goes, huh, 70 years. We're really, really close to that. And, Jer- and, and Daniel in Daniel 9, prays one of the most beautiful prayers. Daniel is a righteous man. And he pleads with God, says, God, I have sinned and my brothers. We are rotten to the core, but yet you and your graciousness have said at the end of 70 years, you would restore us. And guess what? He keeps his word. The book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah, detail the return of the captives to the Holy Land. And we see all throughout Scripture the fulfillment of this promise. Right in the middle of it, though, in Jeremiah 29, he gives us a a, a corrective to say, be real careful that you listen carefully to God's word and not to the flattery of false prophets. In verses 8 and 9, we're not going to read it, 
But you have these false prophets who go, no, it's not going to be 70 years. It's going to be two. So go ahead and build tents and live in them and keep, keep your bags packed because God says we're going back. When you build your life upon false promises, you will always be disappointed. But when you build your life upon the truth of God's word, you will always have hope. Here's what I love about this whole story. You can go back in your Bible to um, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 26 through 31. Deuteronomy, okay? Long time ago, before Jeremiah 29. And here's what he says. As um, the children of Israel are wandering in the wilderness, getting ready to walk into the promised land, God says, let me tell you, let me tell you a little story about um, a nation called Israel. They have a great God who rescues them from Egypt and sustains them while they wander through the desert, all of them. Their shoe does not wear out. Their clothes do not wear out. They're provided food miraculously. And they love their God that's given them these good laws and they obey him. And God brings them into a land that they don't have that he's going to give to them. And that land is so prosperous and bountiful that their hearts will grow fat. And then they will forget the God who has done all these things for them. And guess what that God will have to do? He'll have to deport them from the land that he has given them to a foreign oppressor until the time that they repent and return and come back. Deuteronomy 4, Jeremiah 29. It happened exactly as he predicted it. And that makes the promise in Jeremiah 29, 11 so much sweeter that God knew the unfaithfulness of his people and had already made provision for their forgiveness and their restoration. So guys, here's how Jeremiah 29, 11 applies for us. It's no short-term health and wealth gospel. It's not, I'm going to do this and God will give me this as a reward. It's not that. The application for us, I really do believe, is even more incredible than the application to the Jews. We have not been overrun and captured by ISIS. That's not happened. Modern-day Babylonians have not broken down our church, taken us to a foreign country, and imprisoned us. But we do battle with sin, the flesh, the world, and the devil. And the Bible has promised us that Christ, even though there are warnings about the terrors of judgment for those who disobey God, which the last time I checked is me, and you, terrors of judgment for those who disobey God. The Bible promises us for those who are in Christ, the terrors, the tsunami, the tidal wave of that judgment has fallen on Christ in his cross. We see it coming. And he does not apply it to our account. He gives it to Jesus that by putting our faith in him, we avoid the wrath of God and we receive his righteousness and his holiness as a gift. It's true, even though we've trusted Christ, we may experience difficulty and hardship, but we have been promised that we're not victims to the things that happen to us. We are victors through Christ who strengthens us, not to hit the softball over the fence, but to be crushed and not destroyed to keep going on, to persevere because His Spirit strengthens us, to have freedom from the captivity to spiritual bondage that we've all experienced, to be restored into a relationship with God from which we have all experienced some kind of separation. God does this not because He's rewarding our faithfulness. That's the most amazing thing of all. He's doing it because He Himself is faithful and we are faithless. 
Does Jeremiah 29, 11 apply to us? Yes, just not how most of us read it as a quick fix to get what we want. He promises us that if we're in Christ, there is no short-term physical blessing like health or wealth, but eternal life in the reaping of spiritual reward through a relationship with our great God and Savior. And friends, I can't think of a greater blessing or a better plan than that. For all of my mistakes to be paid for, for my future destination to an area that I don't even really know, my ticket's been bought and my arrival has been secured, not because of anything that I have done, but what has happened for me and for you through Christ. Pray with me, please. Father, you tell us that you know the plans that you have for us. And the plans, very simply, it's for everyone who lives on the face of this planet to put their faith in the name and the work of Jesus Christ. That's not an empty promise. That's not just assenting intellectually to the fact that you lived as a historical person. But that is allowing you to be the king of our life, to come in and transform us, to cause us to live for something beyond our immediate satisfaction. To live not just to make ourselves happy, but to find our deepest and most satisfying happiness in you and in you alone. I pray today that my friends gathered here today will know the full blessing of that promise. If there's anyone who's, who's here who has not truly and sincerely placed their faith in Christ and submitted to his kingship, that today could be the day of salvation for them. That they could begin to experience in seed form the blessing of this promise that we find in Jeremiah 29, 11. Because you give your blessings to be enjoyed, not to be put on a shelf for some future date, but you've given us an abundance of life and an eternal life that begins now and continues on for eternity. Father, we pray that you'll help us to move into that blessing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.